Chapter 1 The Subtler Form of Works Righteousness For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Romans 7.15 There is no way to know for sure, but this might be the most relatable verse in all the Bible. In one sentence, Paul sums up what is one of the greatest conundrums of our human existence. Why do we sin even when we desire not to? Christian or not, if there is any good in you at all, you know what it is like to have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Romans 7.18 Maybe you are a parent who wants to be more gentle and loving with your kids, but you find yourself almost incapable of going a day without an outburst of anger. Or maybe you are a spouse who wants to be more present and thoughtful, but the pressures of work or the cares of life always get the best of your attention. Maybe you genuinely want to forgive and move on, but within you is a bitterness that is seemingly too sweet to leave behind. We all have planned to be done with that thing. Overeating, substance abuse, pornography, laziness, negativity, you name it. Only to find ourselves doing it again within days or weeks. When will we finally be done? We know that social media breeds jealousy and insecurity. The news breeds fear and anxiety. They make us feel awful, but we feel even worse when we are not following them. So we mindlessly scroll. We know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that money can't buy happiness. The very reason this phrase is so cliché is because it is so profoundly and obviously true. Yet we live as if money can buy happiness— going on about life, miserably obsessed with financial freedom and material comfort. I could keep going, but you get the point. To a great degree, we intuitively know better than to give ourselves to these things which do not benefit the soul and have little or no eternal value, but we cannot help ourselves. Deep down, even though we despise these things, there is a part of us that apparently loves them too. The plethora of secular content today that is devoted to the area of self-help is evidence of the fact that we genuinely desire to be our best selves, whatever that means, but also that there is something within us that makes this terribly difficult. Desire to be better, or lack thereof, is not the problem in the way that some suppose, nor is self-discipline the solution. We may have the noblest intentions, but at the end of the day, we remain slaves of instinct and passion. Simply put, the flesh is a beast of nature that no one can tame. We may overcome it in part, but we are never entirely free from this ongoing conflict within ourselves. Some appear to be doing better than others, sure. But when it comes to the hidden life, that which at every hour demands love, patience, joy, sacrifice, humility, mercy, self-control, etc., it appears that no one comes close to any standard of perfection. It seems the best remedy we have, then, is to give in, give up, or just give it our best. This is the kind of cheap, wholesale advice that our society and even our church buys in bulk. To be fair, though, it is the only sane and comforting conclusion for those who recognize that they are in a lifelong war they cannot win. This is where I found myself for many years as a Christian. Desperately wanting to live a life pleasing to God— but painfully aware of my inability to do so. The more I wanted it, the more it hurt. 
so it was usually easier to care a little bit less than I knew I should. Few passages in Scripture brought me more comfort than Paul's words in the latter half of Romans 7. In some of the hardest times, I would cry out with him, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 7, 24-25 It was very comforting to know that even the mighty Apostle Paul felt like I did at times. It reminded me that there was nothing I could really do about all this, but the struggle was just part of the Christian life. We fight against sin, sin fights against us. We have some good days and some bad days, some wins and some losses. It is difficult, but it is worth it. It will all be over someday when Jesus comes to deliver us. There's just one problem. This is not the gospel, nor is it an accurate interpretation of Paul's monologue. More on that in the next chapter. It may provide temporary relief, but is relief all that we desire? No. We want deliverance. We want victory. And we want it now, not in our distant future. Otherwise, it is hard to see in what way the gospel is any more helpful in our day-to-day life than the next best self-help book, or better, a few glasses of wine. But the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't just shift the momentum. It changes the game entirely in a way that nothing else can. If our understanding of the gospel fails to explain how this is so, then believers will have little, if any, advantage in this life over non-believers, let alone any message worth sharing. This, I believe, is the sad case for much of the church today, and it is time for that to change. But before we go any further, let me be clear that this is not a self-help gospel. In fact, it could not be further from it, and thank God, for we have already determined that we cannot help ourselves. Moreover, this is not the way for you to become all that you want to be, unless, of course, you want to be holy. Rather, it is the way for you to become all that you were created to be. It is death to sin and life to God and nothing in between. It is full restoration with no limit and no compromise. It is amazingly practical and wildly inconceivable. It is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Colossians 1.26 It is perfect freedom today for all who repent and believe. The power of sin is the law. Let us begin by reading Romans 7 all the way through. This passage will equip us with some great insight and serve as a solid foundation once we understand it properly. It may be helpful to leave your Bible open to this passage through this chapter and the next, since we reference it and the surrounding scriptures quite frequently. If you were to look for a theme in this chapter, you would probably notice the frequent use and connection between the ideas of the law and sin. From the outset, it is apparent that Paul wants his readers to know they have been released from the law through Christ. Why? Because despite the law's most obvious purpose, which is to direct us toward obedience, being under the law actually undermines this goal, making it more difficult to obey God and enslaving us to sin. This, of course, was offensive to those first-century Jewish Christians who held God and His law in high regard. To be clear, This law, to which he refers, may be understood in its most general sense as God's commands. 
So it seemed to them that Paul was denying the goodness and relevance of God's commands, although he was not. In reality, Paul was just acknowledging that we are like children who do exactly what their parents tell them not to do. It is not the parents' fault for giving the right command, nor does it mean that the command should not have been given. For the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Romans 7.12 Nonetheless, it is through the command that we are tempted to sin. This is why Paul taught that the power of sin is the law. 1 Corinthians 15.56 Despite the goodness of God's commands, to be under them is to be under the control of sin. But to be free from the law is to be free from sin, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Romans 7, 4. This being the case, it is of the utmost importance that we Christians live as ones who are truly no longer under the law. Otherwise, sin will control us. Yet, at the same time, we cannot completely do away with the law as if God's commandments are not relevant to us anymore. They certainly are. See Romans three thirty one. Hence, one of the greatest enigmas in Christianity. How can we take holiness seriously without becoming once again enslaved to the law? How can we live completely under grace without the risk of becoming entitled or irresponsible with that grace? How can we insist on obedience to God's commands while also insisting that obedience is no longer a means to salvation? How can we preach that it is all by grace through faith without diminishing the costly nature of discipleship, etc.? Many have wrestled with this seeming contradiction, and like me, they have felt either misunderstood, stupid, or crazy, despite the fact that their intuition is correct. The gospel has to be better than this. In our church today, it seems there are essentially two options. One, try harder. Two, stop trying so hard. The former leads to legalism and the latter to licentiousness. Both leave the Christian in the grips of sin. Luckily for us, this problem is not new, and the solution is written across the pages of Scripture. The Obedience of Faith If we take an even broader scope of Romans, we find a predominant theme throughout the whole letter. In the first and last paragraphs of Romans, Paul states that it is his apostolic duty to bring about the obedience of faith. Romans 1.5 and 16.26. This provides some good context for the letter. Paul is on a quest to explain how believers are made righteous, that is, without sin, by faith alone, as opposed to the usual means of striving. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified or made righteous in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Romans 3, 20-22 There is a very important word in this passage that reveals its meaning. Manifested. When something is manifested, it is revealed, made known, brought into the light, etc. Notice, then, what is being manifested. God's own righteousness. And how it is manifested? By making His people righteous, i.e. justified, like Him. Paul is writing here about how God's perfect character or moral uprightness is made known to the world. 
And while God has always used his people for this task, we were made in his image after all. He now brings about obedience in his people through their faith in Jesus Christ, rather than their subjugation to the law. Therefore, faith and grace are never contrary to obedience, as if they give us a license to sin. Rather, in the Christian life, they are the very means to obedience. Our faith in God's grace is actually the only thing that delivers us from sin, whereas our sheer will to obey God's law, no matter how determined we are, is never enough. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 It would be difficult to overstate the importance of this point. Since the earliest days of the church, Christians have struggled with the practical implications of faith and grace. The natural mind intuitively feels like a call to holiness is something that must be added to the gospel of grace to balance the message. Otherwise, we might just go on sinning. The natural mind thinks that in addition to believing the gospel, we must then obey God, as if you can do one without the other. The result is that well-meaning Christians, myself included, using their natural minds, have tainted the gospel by adding works of the law back into it, unintentionally subjecting one another to slavery once again. Paul preached a radical message, where we are released from law and need only to believe, and he was constantly being accused of promoting a gospel where obedience is optional and sin is encouraged. See Romans 3.8. This is the context for questions like these. Are we to sin that grace may abound? Romans 6.1. Or are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Romans 6.15. The intended readers were not looking for an excuse to sin. Rather, they had a great appreciation for the law and desired to obey God. See Romans 6.17. But that is exactly where the issue arises. They could not see how a person was accountable to obey God if the person was not under law, but under grace. Romans 6.14, as Paul said they were. They could not see how obedience was relevant in the context of grace. It seemed to them that Paul's message of grace alone through faith alone was an excuse to sin, whereas only God's law gave the believer a responsibility to obey. Thus, they wondered, how could God do away with works of the law entirely? But as we just mentioned, it was Paul's point to prove that faith in God's grace is never an excuse to sin. It is the very way that a person is freed from sin. Failure to understand this is what kept these early Christians hanging on to the law as a daily means to holiness and, to their surprise, what kept them in captivity to sin. I suggest to you here that the church has been doing this just a little more subtly and unknowingly ever since, which is the reason so many have not experienced the kind of victory over sin that the gospel promises. While there may be some who use grace as an excuse to sin, there are also plenty, like those to whom Paul was writing, who genuinely desire to obey God, but see no other way of doing so besides the same way as before, trying. They have yet to connect the dots between believing in Jesus and obeying Him. Therefore, practically speaking, belief and obedience have remained two separate things. While they know they are not technically under the law, 
Their obedience continues to depend on a law-abiding, works-based mindset, which keeps them enslaved to sin. I have no intention to condemn anyone here. This described me for years. My faith was genuine, and I really wanted to be sanctified. But in the moments when I lacked the desire to obey, my understanding of God's grace did not equip me with the power to obey. Despite my belief in Jesus, my obedience was still almost entirely contingent upon my own willpower, which changed all the time, and not really on my faith in the finished work of Christ. Though technically under grace, I was practically under the law, and I simply did not know any better. Romans 6 through 8 is what opened the door for me to see it. Here, Paul's goal is to connect the dots between belief and obedience, and to show how grace does exactly what the law was intended to do, but never could. In the coming chapters, we will begin to see more clearly how these things are so. But right now, we need to establish a little more context. A Subtler Form of Works Righteousness But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Romans 7, 6 It may now be helpful to clarify what is really meant by being released from the law, and, on the other side of the same coin, what is meant by being under the law. Romans 6.14 This way, we can determine for ourselves which way we actually tend to operate. Most Christians, I believe, understand these concepts in part, but not entirely. As a result, they live in partial freedom, but not the fullness that God intended for them. Perhaps the most basic understanding of being under the law is that one must obey all or some of the Old Testament Jewish laws. Circumcision, Sabbath, festivals, animal sacrifice, ritual washings, diet restrictions, etc. Using this understanding, then, to be released from the law is to be free from all those burdensome and no longer relevant Jewish commands. Here is where everyone issues a sigh of relief. Now, you might reason, we need only to love, since love is the great commandment. But that is just it. Love is a commandment. Even more, it is the sum, the fulfillment of God's law, not freedom from it. Anyone who has seriously devoted themselves to perfect love, even for one day, knows that it is an exceptionally difficult standard compared to those old Jewish laws aforementioned. Therefore, let us not fool ourselves into thinking that focusing solely on love inherently frees us from the law. Love is the law. Another way to understand being under the law is that one must earn their right standing with God by obeying Him. This is the classic understanding of works righteousness. Logically, then, to be released from the law means that we do not have to earn God's favor anymore because we are placed in right standing with Him through Jesus' perfect obedience and sacrifice. We are, therefore, free from the constant pressure of having to earn God's approval, and we need only to believe in what Christ has done. While this is certainly accurate and unspeakably wonderful, it is also not the full meaning of being released from the law. Notably, it fails to explain how someone not under the law will actually be more obedient than someone under the law. Or in other words, it fails to make an explicit connection between belief and obedience. 
You might argue that God's free gift should simply motivate us to respond with loving obedience. The problem is that, though it should, it does not always do that, at least not for me. Even worse, His unearned favor can do the opposite by providing a sense of comfort and safety in the midst of mindful disobedience. In this case, we are back to the problem that many have with Paul's gospel of grace, in that it potentially encourages or gives a license to sin. All that to say, this view leaves a very important question unanswered. In those times when we do not feel internally motivated by God's love and acceptance, how does God's grace, or the work of Jesus, still produce obedience in our lives? This question can only be answered when we understand the full meaning of being released from the law. To be under law, in the more general way that Paul means in Romans, is for one's obedience to depend on one's own willpower, or you might say motivation, to obey. This is righteousness by works of the law. Romans 3.20 Under the law, obedience comes about by sheer human effort, or works. It is to serve a list of rules and regulations with one's own strength. Or perhaps a little better, it is to love God by trying to love Him, to receive God by trying to receive Him, to please God by trying to please Him, etc. You can call it whatever you like to make it sound better than it is. Surrendering to God, dying to yourself, letting the Spirit lead, resting in His grace, etc. But I think if we are honest... This is often just fancy Christian language for obeying God's commands by doing your best in any given moment. This is, by definition, what it means to live under the law. Accordingly, to be released from the law means that our obedience no longer depends on our willpower, but on our faith in what God has done. It is no longer about having enough motivation. It is about having the right belief. It is not about trying harder but trusting more. As you can probably tell, this will be a common theme for us. Faith alone produces obedience, and there is no longer any use talking about willpower. How exactly this is so will become clearer as we progress through the book. But for now, here is what I hope for you to see. It is quite possible for Christians who believe they have been released from the law to unknowingly continue living under it desperately trying to obey God out of their sheer willpower, just like any good Jew. According to Paul, this is the exact reason they remain enslaved to sin, and it is the context for the latter half of Romans 7. I deeply believe that this is the way most Christians in this generation have lived, for it is all they have been taught. Do you relate to it at all? Have you ever felt like the Christian life feels like a whole lot of striving and effort, a whole lot of you. Have you ever felt like the transformation that it promises is just out of reach? Like no matter how badly you want it, you never seem to want it quite enough. Like no matter how much you love God, you never seem to love Him quite enough. If so, and I say this with no condemnation, given that this described me for so long, then you are still operating in a form of works righteousness, i.e., under the law. I do not mean works righteousness in the sense that you believe you can earn your righteous status by your works. 
I mean it in the much more subtle sense that you are trying to grow in righteousness by your own works or willpower. But I tell you, there is a better way. The way to righteousness is the way of faith. For the righteous shall live by faith. Romans 1.17 Love is the fruit, not the means. By and large, Christians understand very well the idea that they are saved only through faith in Jesus Christ. This is good and true, but it often is missing an important element. When we say that we are saved through faith, most think this to mean that A, we are reconciled to God through faith, and B, we will receive eternal life in the future through faith. But what we have often failed to see is that we are sanctified through faith too. Once again, this is Paul's aim, to bring about the obedience of faith. Romans 1.5 and 16.26 For many Christians, faith is only practical in that it provides the assurance of salvation. It provides the comfort of knowing they are forgiven, in a right relationship with God, and ultimately going to heaven, despite their current state of sinfulness. But do you see how this understanding of faith, for the most part, has to do only with the beginning and the end of the Christian life? What about this whole thing in between called life? Through faith, are we only delivered from the consequences of our sin, or are we delivered from our sin too? Is it possible that our daily application of faith looks more Jewish than it does Christian? We believe in God. We pray, worship, and read Scripture. We find comfort in being His saved people. We love Him, and we want to please Him. But when it comes to obedience, the best we can do is try. Having begun by the Spirit, are we now being perfected by the flesh? Galatians 3.3 So how does faith bring about obedience in a way that works cannot? As we discussed in the last section, some may say that since we are not trying to earn our salvation, we can freely choose to love God with no strings attached. Or they might say that our relationship with God and His wonderful kindness toward us should stir within us such great love and devotion that we no longer want to sin, and therefore we choose not to. The problem with each of these is that they leave our daily obedience up to however much love we feel in the moment, and we do not always feel it. This is not the obedience of faith, as Paul describes it, but the obedience of love, And love is most definitely a fruit of the Spirit, not the means to the Spirit. Think of it this way. You are like a small apple tree, and love is like the apples that you were made to produce. Do you need apples to grow? Or do you need to grow to produce apples? Of course, it is the latter. Love is not the means to the fruit. Love is the fruit. Love is not the way to righteousness, Love is righteousness. Love is not the means to obedience. It is obedience. No wonder obedience has been so hard. No wonder sanctification takes so long and seems so unattainable. We have mistaken the end for the means, and therefore have had not the means to the end. We have been waiting for more love, but what we really need is more or more accurate faith. To clarify, I am not saying that there is anything wrong with obeying God out of love. This is ideal. When the feeling of love is present and manifesting, 
It is an awesome grace that makes obedience easy, and we can praise God for that. But we should not solely depend on the feeling of love in order to produce obedience to God's commands. That all works wonderfully until you are feeling distant from God and strongly tempted to sin. If you are going to make use of all the grace you have been given, then you must be grounded in something that is greater than your feelings. The truth. And the truth for every believer is that, despite what we feel at a particular moment, the love that we need is already and always there. See Romans 5.5. This is a fundamental truth of the gospel that must be believed to be accessed, and we will give much attention to it as we move forward. While the first half of Romans 7 shows how the law keeps us enslaved to sin, The second half reveals how even someone who delights in obeying the law can still be enslaved to sin if they do not understand the grace of Jesus Christ. See Romans 7, 18 and 22. As we will begin to see in the next chapter, the real problem in the church is not a lack of love, and the desire for sin lies somewhere other than the believer's heart. Only when we understand this can we begin to see how faith alone delivers us.